Robert's heart raced as he wondered what chaos lay beyond his hotel door. He knew what the Mexican cartel was capable of, and he feared he'd never see his family again. This is The Miracle Files. I'm Emily Jones. And I'm Holly Worthington. We're two sisters who love a captivating true story, but we're also seeking more light in our lives. So we're on a mission to find and share unforgettable, uplifting stories of God's miracles. We hope you'll join us on this journey. Okay, so today's story is about Bob Meek. A.K.A. Robert Meek. Robert Meek. And the experience that he had when he traveled to Mexico and was virtually kidnapped by a Mexican gang who referred to themselves as the cartel. Yes. And before we begin, we should probably say that the Miracle Files podcast is a family-friendly podcast. This one is a little more intense for younger children. Yeah, this is one that I would just recommend parents listen to first. And then if you feel comfortable with your kids listening to it, that's great. Yeah. Okay, let's just jump right into this one. It's a good one. Having grown up in the agricultural world of Southern Colorado, it only made sense that Robert Meek would go into the agricultural business as an adult. Because the growing season in Mexico is different, the U.S. agricultural industry depends quite heavily on Mexico. As CEO of onion and potato companies, Robert had been traveling to Mexico many times over decades of work. But when Robert wanted to travel to Chihuahua to meet with a new grower, Sean, one of the owners of the company, expressed concerns that Chihuahua was a dangerous part of Mexico. Sean didn't feel comfortable going there himself, and his last words before Robert left were, Be careful. It's not safe there. Robert spoke Spanish fluently and felt confident that he knew Mexico well. He figured if he didn't go out after dark and only went to places he knew were safe, that he would be fine. So on the evening of September 7th, 2016, he flew to Chihuahua. The next day, he visited his new grower's farm. Then Robert went back to his hotel. His plan was to spend one more night in Chihuahua and take a return flight at 6 a.m. the next morning. No alarm bells went off for Robert when the hotel clerk asked for his personal information, such as home address and purpose for visit. He'd answered similar questions while going through customs at the airport. After visiting the onion farm, he looked forward to chatting with his wife on the phone before going to bed. He had no idea how this short trip would soon turn into the nightmare of his life. Got back that evening. Uh, it was about nine o'clock at night. I had spoken with Lynette. And then after, I received a phone call on my hotel room telephone. And the voice on the other side said, Mr. Meek, we are the hotel security. A cartel has entered our hotel. They've taken over our property. And they are entering rooms and they're killing people and we will do our best to save your life. Don't go out in the hallway, uh, stay in your room, and hopefully you'll be safe. Robert Meek followed the hotel security officer's advice and stayed in his room. 
His heart and his thoughts raced as he wondered what chaos lay beyond his hotel door. He searched desperately for a place to hide in his room. He first considered the bathtub, but ultimately concluded the paper-thin walls connecting the bathroom to the hallway would provide no protection from flying bullets. He decided to lay flat on the floor and hide next to his bed. And terror struck. I could feel the unreality, thinking that this has to be a dream, that I can't be involved in something like this. And yet the reality continued. After speaking with hotel security for another 10 to 15 minutes, the security employee asked Robert to give him his cell phone number. The man assured Robert it was for his own safety. He told Robert he needed a way to stay in contact in case the cartel took out the hotel phone system. It seemed logical enough to Robert, and he gave the man his cell phone number. As soon as Robert hung up the hotel phone, his cell phone rang. It was the security officer again, only what he said now made Robert's blood run cold. And they called me on my cell phone. Only this time they said, we are the cartel and you'll do what we say or we'll kill you. The situation went from bad to worse. And I felt again, the nightmarish reality that was upon me. He struggled to breathe and felt a rising tide of fear from head to toe. And yet, this was reality, and there was no escaping it. They told me that they had all my devices bugged, and that I wasn't to reach out by email, by text, by a phone call, that they had my devices bugged, and if I tried, that it would be immediate death. Robert had never heard of virtual kidnappings, but Mexican criminals have become very adept at them, and Robert was now a virtual captive. The voice on the other end of the phone threatened Robert, the same voice that only moments ago seemed to be helping Robert. Now, this voice assured Robert that the cartel knew where his family lived and had contacts in the U.S. If Robert didn't follow their directions to the T, they threatened to kill him and his family. And they didn't just threaten their lives. They went into graphic detail about torturing members of his family if he did not comply with their demands. Feelings of helplessness and fear overtook Robert. This went on for excruciating hour after hour. I spoke to them. We never hung up. We spoke for three hours. And there were four people that would get on the call at random times. And it was like the low-level guy to his boss to his boss to the big boss. And with every person that would get on, the call became more and more threatening. Oh, it was terrible language. Uh, the threats were unbelievable against me. They said that we will find your family, we'll kill you all. And I just thought, how can this be happening to me? And yet it was. And then Robert received new and terrifying instructions. We talked through that first part of the night, and they told me that they were going to take me to a different location. And I argued. I said, I don't want to go to another location. I'm not leaving this hotel. My work knew that I was coming home. My family knew. And I knew that if I didn't show, that they would search for me and at least find the hotel I was staying at. Well, they said, it's not your choice. You'll do what we say or death. 
Robert received the order to leave his room immediately and head to the other hotel. He was also ordered to keep his phone on speaker and to take it with him. They told me that I would take my cell phone and a cell phone charger and nothing else. And they gave me the name of a hotel and they gave me the address of that hotel. And they instructed me that you'll leave your hotel room, you'll get a cab and you'll go to this hotel and you'll keep your cell phone on speaker the whole time so that we can hear everything that you're saying. And if you try to escape, you're dead. He wondered what he could do to let someone know what was happening to him without alerting the cartel. He decided to quickly ransack his hotel room in hopes that someone would come later and realize something was wrong. It was all he could think to do, and he had to do it fast. He left all his belongings, including his laptop and an open day planner, where he'd written down the name and address of the new hotel. I leave the room, I walk down the hall, and they tell me, as you walk through the hall, there are three men, three of us, that are in the hotel lobby, and they will watch you leave, and if you try to escape, they will kill you. And I look over to my right, and there are three men looking at me. As I leave, their eyes followed mine. My heart was raging 10,000 beats a minute. I, again, realized the perilous situation that I was in. Standing there outside the hotel, Robert waited for a taxi, again taking in the strange feeling of surrealness. A taxi finally pulled up. Here was a chance to tell someone he was being held captive. And I wanted to tell this taxi driver, help me. But I couldn't because I was on speakerphone and they were listening to me. And I didn't know if the taxi cab might have been one of them. And I couldn't take that chance yet. Robert knew the danger was too grave. He didn't know if he could trust the taxi driver and his phone was still on speaker. Dreadfully, Robert gave the taxi driver the address of the new hotel. Before leaving the first hotel, the voice on the phone told Robert he needed to check in using a specific Mexican name as an alias. Despite his absolute terror, Robert decided to use a different name. He mustered his courage and gave the hotel clerk the name of his stepfather instead, Kenneth Shepard. I got to the hotel and I just felt that I'm not using that name. I used the name of my stepfather, Kenneth Shepard. I check into the hotel, I get to the room, and they're irate with me. And they say, why did you use that name? Who is this guy? Why didn't you use the name we gave you? And I made an excuse. I said, listen, I forgot the name. I couldn't remember what you gave me. And they said, who's Kenneth Shepard? And I said, Kenneth is my favorite name. If I could have named myself as a baby, I would be Kenneth. And I said, Shepard is the good man above, and I need every blessing I can get. Miraculously, his captives believed Robert. Robert made his way to the hotel room. It was now 2 a.m., and he had been on the phone with the cartel for five hours. Every three to four minutes, the cartel would come on the line and say, Robert, estás ahí? And Robert would assure them that he was still there and following their orders. Robert knelt and prayed at every chance he could, and then a physical darkness seemed to envelop Robert. At three in the morning, my hotel room got very dark. The light was still on, but it became dark. And with a feeling of death that loomed over me, and I just had the feeling that I'm not going to survive this experience, that they will ultimately kill me. 
Robert wondered what he could do to combat the darkness. He knew he needed to somehow summon more spiritual strength. And so in addition to my prayers that I've been saying the whole time now for six hours, I knew I had to get an increased abundance of the spirits in my life. So I looked up some scriptures that I thought would bring me strength. And uh, as I read, that became very comforting to me. And I knew that I had to get rid of this evil feeling that I felt. So I stood up and silently, I cast the evil spirits out and they left. And my room became light again. It was a spiritual feeling that improved greatly. Robert continued to read on and found scriptures that spoke of ministering angels. He prayed again and felt the comfort of loved ones who had gone before him. They didn't speak to him in words, but he felt the assurance that he would be okay somehow. He didn't feel confident that being okay meant he would survive to go back to his wife and children again, but he felt sure that either way, he would be at peace and be embraced in the love of his Heavenly Father. Robert knew what the Mexican cartel was capable of. He had a friend whom he'd done business with that lost a brother to a kidnapping by a cartel in Mexico. And in the moment, he began to prepare himself spiritually for what was to come. The thought that remained in my mind was, will I ever see my family again? And I wasn't sure I would. That night, I felt that I would not survive this experience. And the overriding thought that was in my heart was, are you ready to die? And so I knelt down and I prayed to God. I said, God, am I ready to die? And have I lived a good enough life that would allow me to live with you again? And that was my hope. Robert prayed for an hour straight and finally a feeling came to him. And it was an amazing experience because a feeling came to me that basically said, you're okay. You're okay, you're not perfect, but you're okay. And you don't have to fear death. And that was such a relief to me that God loved me enough to let me know that I was okay. And then Robert did something incredible. He began to pray to forgive his captors. The second hour after this came with the thought that I hate these guys. And I hated them with a hate that I'd never felt in my life because I felt they were robbing my family from me. I didn't know what would happen to my family after this experience ended. And all these things piled up in this huge mountain of hatred. And I thought, how can I die with hatred being the last thought in my mind? And I just couldn't do that. And so I knelt again and I prayed to God, help me forgive these guys that hold me captive but it didn't seem to work. I didn't feel the power to really be able to forgive them, and yet I was asking God for this incredible blessing to forgive. Finally, a feeling came that basically delivered the message, don't worry about it. Jesus Christ paid for their sins, and He forgave them and will forgive them for what they do. And at that moment, I felt this feeling of hatred vanish. As Robert felt the feelings of hatred disappear from his heart, he asked God what he could do to help someone else. His mind went back to his days as a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Robert asked the man on the phone if he knew how Robert had learned Spanish so well, and the man actually responded. He asked how, 
and Robert explained that he had served a mission in Guatemala and had tried to serve Jesus Christ on that mission and bless others. As they began to correspond back and forth, Robert gained a glimmer of hope that maybe this cartel member's heart could be softened. Robert hoped the man would even possibly release him. The voice on the other end of the line asked Robert if he had baptized anyone on his mission, and Robert said yes. The man asked several other questions about the church Robert belonged to. And I asked him, I said, who are you? Tell me. I demanded that he tell me. And he said, mi nombre es Sergio. He said, my name is Sergio. And then he said, when I was a young man, I was baptized in your church. And yet he said, I have turned away from everything. I've lived a terrible life. And he said, I have no family. I have no friends. I have nobody that I can trust or that trusts me. That's my life. And so I simply told him that if he would change, if he would repent, that there was hope for him. There was a way for him to work back into good favor in the sight of God. And then he said something that I'll never forget, and I share it humbly. But he said, you know, Robert, if I ever thought that I could change, he said, I hope that I could find someone like you to help me, because when you speak to me, <clears throat> I get a really warm feeling in my heart. And at that point, I knew that uh, I had accomplished everything I could possibly do with him. I accepted that my job was done. Sadly, at 7 a.m., as quickly as Sergio had softened, he became vile again and began making horrific threats to Robert. He said, if you're going to do onions in Mexico, you have to respect the cartel. And he said, we need money. He said, but before we talk about that, I'm going to send you down to a little store down the streets a block away. You'll go in, you'll buy a disposable Mexican cell phone, and we will use that cell phone to communicate with your company to extract money. Sergio told Robert to walk a block down the road and that he would come to a park. He described how Robert would find a bench there with two cartel men sitting on it. The store was just beyond the park. Robert walked out of the hotel, down the street, and there it was, the park and the bench. Two men sat on the bench and watched Robert walk past. Everything was just as Sergio had described. Robert walked into the store and purchased the disposable phone. He asked the store employees to activate the phone, which they did. As Robert walked back to the hotel, the two men still sat on the bench, staring him down as he walked past. Back in his hotel room, Robert was told that the cartel was ready to ask for his ransom, 300,000 pesos. They had Robert call his company on the disposable phone while keeping his personal cell phone on speaker. They had me call my company on that Mexican cell phone and they told me exactly what to say. And so I called our CFO and I said, Trevor, good morning, this is Bob. I said, I'm held against my will and they want money and I said, get prepared to go to the bank. And he laughs and he says, right, Bob. He said, when are you coming home? And I said, this is for real. And then they told me, hang up the phone. And I did. Trevor walked into the room with all the other salespeople and management. And he said, guys, he said, I just took this most strange call from Bob. And he explained what I had said. And he said, he just didn't sound right. And I said, I think it's for real. Well, 
shock and surprise and awe and fear enter their hearts, their beings. Several phone calls between the cartel and Trevor then ensued as Trevor desperately tried to find a way to get the money to the cartel. We had numerous conversations back and forth. They want money, and they told Trevor, go to the bank, get $19,000, put it in a briefcase. One of your people will get on an airplane, will fly to Chihuahua. You'll give Bob the briefcase, and I will deliver it to them. And I said, I'm not doing that. I refuse to do that. I'm not meeting you guys. And I said, besides, we couldn't get a briefcase of money across the border if we wanted to. And so we went to plan B. They finally settled on Western Union, but the plan was complicated. Because wire transfers of $1,000 or more to Mexico are flagged, his captors directed Robert to have 20 people in the U.S. send $950 to 20 different addresses in Mexico. However, when Robert's employees went to send the money, Western Union insisted they give their names and personal addresses. No one felt comfortable giving their addresses to the cartel, so they stalled, trying to figure out another plan. Robert's captors were losing their patience. They threatened to begin chopping off Robert's fingers one by one if the money was not sent within 30 minutes. Meanwhile, Robert's co-workers had notified the FBI, hoping that somehow they could get to Robert before the worst happened. Robert sat waiting, minutes dragging on like hours. He hoped desperately for some kind of rescue. At 3.30 p.m., Robert's hotel phone rang. My hotel phone in my room rings, and I answer it. These guys are still listening to my iPhone, and the voice on the line says, are you Robert Meek? And without thinking, I said, yes, I am. And they had instructed me when they first introduced themselves to the cartel, if you disclose to anyone who you are, it's immediate death. You cannot tell anyone who you are. Robert realized he had made a grave error. He quickly slammed the phone down in fear. His captors were enraged. They said, you just told someone who you were, didn't you? And I said, it was an honest mistake. I knew they knew. And they said, you'll pay for this. Two minutes later, Robert startled at the sound of someone knocking at his hotel door. Robert slowly opened the door. Three people in street clothes stood there. One of them flashed a Mexican police badge, but the last 18 hours had made Robert afraid to trust anyone. The man asked him if he was Robert Meek. And they asked, are you Robert Meek? And I couldn't reply. Fear struck me. In a probably a millisecond of a thought, I thought of Elizabeth Smart. And if you recall, when the police found her, she didn't immediately confess to them that she was Elizabeth. And I felt that complete the hesitancy to disclose who you are because of all the emotional trauma that had happened up until this point. And, and they said, we're the police. You have to believe us, we're the police. And uh, I finally said, okay, here's my chance. It's the best odds I have. And I said, I am Robert. With the cartel still on the phone, Robert had confirmed his identity, something he was told to never do. They grabbed my phone out of my hand and they shut the call off. And the phone rang back immediately. And they didn't answer it and they unpowered the phone. And they said, we need to get you out of here. But I said, they have this hotel 
staked out. They told me, I've seen them. They said, no, we walked the hotel. There's nobody here that we see. And I said, well, draw your guns at least because there's going to be a gunfight as we leave. We walk out, we walk through the lobby, which gave me intense anxiety. They helped me get in the back seat. And at this time I'm thinking that, okay, they missed me in the hotel. They'll do a drive-by shooting now. The police car was an unmarked Toyota RAV4 with only two gears. As they crept along down the road, Robert felt far from safe. Finally, they arrived at the police station where Robert could take a moment to breathe at last. And we get in the police station, fill out the reports, and the two police officers that uh, rescued me came up to me and they said, Robert, we have a favor to ask. I said, sure, whatever you need, I'll do. And they said, could we take a picture with you? Because this is probably the best day in our career. And I said, absolutely. Tell me about this being the best day of your career. And they very solemnly said, we don't rescue people. We recover them. The true miracle was that Robert had been inspired throughout the entire ordeal. His ransacked room alerted the federal police that something was amiss. They were then able to locate the day planner where Robert had written the other hotel's name and address. When the police arrived at the second hotel, they asked if Robert Meek was at their hotel. When they learned he was not, they asked if there were any American-sounding names on their registration list. The hotel staff confirmed they had a Kenneth Shepard staying there. The police would have never been able to find Robert without the trail of clues he was inspired to leave. Robert refused to stay the night in another hotel in Chihuahua, but there were no available flights left to the United States until the next day. He was desperate to be reunited with his family. His grower offered to drive him to the border. Robert gratefully took the offer, though he knew it meant traveling through the badlands of Mexico, another treacherous area. He contacted a friend who offered to pick Robert up in a private airplane, and Robert was able to meet his friend at the border and travel back to the United States that very evening. That night, Robert had the most joyous reunion with his wife and family. Robert's wife had been sick with worry, but had contacted everyone she could think of to ask for prayers on Robert's behalf. Here's her side of the story. So I didn't know anything was amiss with him until... Middle of the morning, I had decided to go to the zoo with my little grandsons and my daughter. We were just buckling them in the car when we received a phone call from my son-in-law. And he said, well, I have some news that Bob, your, your husband, has been kidnapped in Mexico and he's not coming home today. And when I heard that, it was just a moment of complete unbelief because, I mean, he works for a farm. You know, we're just ordinary people. And then he got off the call. I thought, what can I do? And I thought the only source of power or comfort is from God. And so we told the little crampoys, we said, hold your arms. We have to say a special prayer right now for your mom. And so I was the voice of the prayer and it was probably the most sincere, heartfelt plea for heavenly help that I've ever given because I knew that God 
loved this man that I loved and that if there was any way for him to be protected, that it would come through God. Robert has asked himself why this happened. He's asked others as well why they think he experienced this traumatic event along with the miracles that followed. I've shared this story in many settings. And after one youth camp, one young lady comes up to me. She's probably 15 years old. And she said, do you realize why this happened or that this story wasn't about you? And I said, share your perspective with me. And she said, this story was about Sergio. And God needed Sergio to listen. And he wasn't paying attention to God. And so God did what he could only do. He could use one of us here on earth to contact Sergio and get his message across that he loved him and that he was important to him and that there was still hope. We all need one more chance. My faith that God hears and answers our prayers was confirmed. And I know that God is aware of each of us. And when we're going through difficulties, and needs strength beyond our own personal strength that we can seek and receive that through prayer. This story was powerful to me in so many ways. And one of the things that struck me the most is how kind and good Robert Meek's heart was despite going through these awful things. I know. I think that the part of this story that is the most inspirational to me is when he was desperate to be able to forgive these guys, but he couldn't. And I love that he had the impression that Jesus Christ died for our sins and can take on this burden. Yeah. And he was able to just release it and turn it over to Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ and say, you can carry this for me. I know. We should probably talk about Sergio too, because that is such a cool part of the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's a guy who is probably doing a lot of really bad things. And yet God was reaching out to him and saying, turn to me and I will be here for you still. And we don't know Sergio. We don't know the outcome, but God does what he can to at least give us that opportunity. Yeah. And I think like if we ever feel like we're beyond hope, I know sometimes people feel like they're not worthy of God's love. I mean, he's aware of all of us all the time. He's aware of every one of us in our trials. And that brings me so much comfort when I think of people who have really suffered horrible tragedies um, to know that God is still there with them through these hard times. And the outcome may have been different. And no matter the outcome, God can still send us comfort and peace in our trials. One of the things that really touched me was his wife, when she prayed with her grandson, and she said it was the most sincere prayer that she'd ever said. But isn't it amazing? Like when we can do nothing else, when we are completely powerless, I mean, I'm sure she felt so powerless. I know Robert felt so powerless, but they both still had prayer. And that was the only thing they had. I know. We remember this happening and our parents called us at the time and asked us to pray for their friend Bob because he had just been kidnapped in Mexico. Yeah, it was really scary at the time. I remember we all prayed for him and for his family and prayed that he would be rescued. And I think probably hundreds of people were praying, many of which who didn't even know Bob, but just knew he needed our prayers. Yeah, it's, it just reminds me of how powerful prayer really is. We just want to thank Robert and Lynette for sharing this incredible story with us. 
Robert wrote a book about his experience. So if you want a deeper dive into his story, it's called One More Chance and you can buy it on Amazon. Thank you for joining us. If you have a miracle to share, contact us at themiraclefiles.com or find us on Facebook. We'll post new episodes on the first day of each month. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it and leave us a review. Join us next time as we discover more of God's miracles. And don't forget to look for His light in your own lives. If you'd like to support us on Patreon so we can produce more episodes like this, go to patreon.com forward slash The Miracle Files. You'll get exclusive access to photos, videos, articles, and other content you won't find anywhere else. We'll also have live chats and we'd love to interact with you there. Thank you so much for your support.